When we were growing up, we were told to respect our elders. Well, tonight, you're going to hear from one of the most respected gentlemen in Columbus, and his last name just happens to be Elder. There is the word, there is the way, and brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief. We meet Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Faces of Faith. I'm Phil Scoggins, your host, and I am delighted to introduce you to my guest tonight, who is the senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Columbus, Jimmy Elder. My longtime friend, thank you for coming on. You're, uh, like I said, the, the third guest. Uh, my, my first guest was my pastor. My second guest was Teresa's pastor. You're, you're, uh, you were, uh, I guess it's at the plate, on deck, in the hole. You were in the hole. Oh, that sounds good to me. I'm <laughs> glad to be here. It's good to be with you, Phil. We met um, soon after, I think, that you arrived in 2003. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We were in St. Francis Hospital at a waiting room. We were there um, to visit a dear friend of ours who was having some uh, medical procedures done. And you were there probably visiting some of your church members who were in, in similar situations. And I was sitting in the waiting room with somebody else, and you were there, and I thought... That's Phil Scoggins. I was, I was pretty excited about it because I'd seen you on the news and was pretty excited to get to see you. It yeah. was the beginning of, of a long friendship. We've known each other now for about 18 years, and, and it is one of the pleasures of my life to have you as a dear friend. And a pleasure of my life, too. You have, you've you been a good friend through all these years, bud. Well, I want to um, let our viewers in on a little bit of your history. If you attend First Baptist, you probably know a lot about Jimmy. But if you don't, we want to uh, rewind the tape, so to speak. We're actually feeling like we're in uh, a radio uh, atmosphere here. Yeah, I so love we, this. We're going to rewind the tape, and let's go back to uh, your home place where you were born and raised, and tell me about your parents and, and the career path that you chose. Well, during when I was born, my dad was pastor of the Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, what is now First Baptist Church of Fayetteville. And I was actually born at Georgia Baptist Hospital in Atlanta to a Georgia Baptist minister during the Georgia Baptist Convention. So I was probably doomed to start with, you know. I would say so. So we lived there for several years, and then from there moved to Royston, Georgia. Dad was pastor of the Royston Baptist Church. And then from there, we moved to Conyers. And Dad was was pastor there for 25 years. And so I literally grew up in Conyers. It was, uh, I moved there when I was five years old. And uh, all the way through high school and through college and seminary they were living right there so and that's where i met roxanne too we will we will talk about your dear sweet wife uh in a moment but um you're a preacher's kid yes and let's talk about the influence that your dad's ministry had on you and your career well you know it's it's kind of interesting because most times people think about preacher's kids and they think uh, troubled souls, and, and maybe maybe we are, but but the truth was, our family saw the ministry as uh, as something we shared. It was something all of us were a part of, and it was very important that way. And and Dad always made sure we were included in whatever took place. We weren't kind of pushed off to the side while he and Mom were were in the forefront. And so we went to lots of dinners and lots of places at people's houses and. And we always felt included. And we met a lot of people during that time. That's In my growing up years, we met a lot of the people who were leaders in the faith, leaders within communities and things like this. They'd be in and out of our house. They'd have dinner with us. And um, I mean, even Jimmy Carter spent uh, a weekend with us there. He came and spoke at the church and stayed at our house for a couple of days. So, so we well, were... let's stop right there because you've you've introduced a former president into the conversation, <laughs> and and I'm I'm mesmerized as to how that happened. Well, he was running he was running for governor at that point. That was he and Dad knew each other back in those days, and so he was running for governor. And um, Dad had there was a well actually trying to think whether he was actually running at that point or whether he was a layperson, you know. But anyway, Dad had him speak at the church for Layman's Day. Dad would always have different people come, somebody who was a leader somewhere to come offer their Christian faith. And so he came and spoke. It was the, 
iciest, snowiest day that Conyers had seen. Dad uh, actually called him and said, look, it's it's kind of a mess around here. Do you still want to come? He said, I made a commitment to you. I'm going to be there. So here he came. And uh, we had the service. He spoke at the service and did a wonderful job. And uh, that gave us an opportunity to meet him back in those days. And uh, uh, it was it was a really neat experience. But we had a lot of people in and out of the house through the years. Mm-hmm. And Mom and Dad didn't send us to the other table. They always had all of us together. We sat together as a family. So uh, even though we were kids at the table, we still were included in that part of it. And I think that's part of the reason that, that our home was a, was a healthy preacher's home in terms of, of us. Now, I did not go into ministry because my dad was a minister. A lot of people assume that. Mm-hmm. In fact, if anything, dad discouraged that. He, uh, he wanted me to make my decision and what I felt called to do. Um, so when I started talking about it, I almost thought he didn't want me to do it because he never said, well, that'd be great, son. I sure would like for you to do it. He just kind of backed away a little bit. And um, it was not until I went through my prayers and my thinking, and it was over a long period of time, actually, and finally made the decision that this is what I felt like I should be doing. This is what the Lord was calling me to do. That I actually um, told Dad, this is what I'm going to do. And then he became very supportive and encouraging and all of that. But his fear was, at, at all the stages, that we would do something just because it was part of the family work as opposed to something that I really needed to be doing. And so that's how I ended up in the ministry was for a call to me, but I had an excellent example in my father. He was a, he was a wonderful minister. He was a caring pastor, and he and Mom... Uh, did all sorts of things together. Mom was the organist at the church, and uh, so I grew up with her there, and so we we had to be real careful about our behavior in church because Mom was on the organ bench, Dad was in the <laughs> pulpit, but that didn't stop them from being able to get to us if they needed to. And uh, one funny story, Mom, Mom and Dad were so close. We had such a good example of a home that um, that we had a pulpit committee that came to see Dad one time. And uh, Dad knew somebody on that particular committee, and what pulpit committees would do, they would come, they would listen, and then they'd go back and talk about who they saw and decide, should we talk to them further, is this somebody we'd want as our pastor? So that committee went back, and the chairman of the committee and Dad were good friends, and he called Dad and he said, Charles, let me tell you something funny. He said, we were on our way back and we were talking about who we, what we thought about you and your sermon and all of this. And uh, one of the ladies just wouldn't say anything and said, finally, I just told her, look, if you liked him, fine. If you didn't like him, fine. You need to tell me what's going on in your mind. And the lady said, well, I hate to say something. He said, say it. It's important. She said, I think there's something going on between that organist and that preacher, the way they look <laughs> at each other. Well, it was my mom. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of example we had. It was something that was evident even to strangers. As you made the decision in education-wise as to where to go to college, you ended up at Mercer. How did you make that decision? Well, now, Dad went to Mercer, and Mercer is in Macon, and that's where my grandparents lived, and there was a family farm there. And I really never considered anywhere else. Um, Mercer was just kind of um, an aspirational place for me. I loved the place. I I knew a lot about it. I had known people there. And there was one particular professor there. Um, his name was Howard Giddens, uh, and uh, Dr. G was like family to my family, he and Ms. G. And um, so I went to see him, and I went to see another guy named Harris Anderson who was there, and they were like mentors to me. And so I was going to go where my mentor was, and that's how I ended up at Mercer. And it was one of the, the happiest experiences of my life, one of the happiest educational experiences of my life. Well, I know one of the people that you met there, a, a professor in journalism, uh, was Billy Watson, who yep. was the former publisher of the Ledger Inquirer. Exactly. Tell me about y'all's interaction while you were there. Well, Billy, Billy was my, uh, I took a concentration in journalism, and, and he and I kind of hit it off. I'd go early to class, and he'd sit on the edge of his desk, and I'd sit at mine, and we'd just chat back and forth about different things. And um, he, was a, he was a remarkably insightful person, a good man. He cared about the students, but he was, a, he was an incredible journalist. And um, he taught me so much about 
perspective and about how you handle a story and how you and how you tell a story and how you make sure that uh, the accuracy of it and all some of the things that on certain fronts have been lost through the years and it was an important piece of that so um, in fact he offered me my first job as I was graduating from Mercer he called me up one day and he said Jimmy he said uh, why don't you come work for me at the Macon Telegraph and News he, uh, he offered for me to write obituaries, which, of course, is the way you started in newspapers back in those mm-hmm. days. And uh, Irma Bombeck mm-hmm. used to say that they, her dad would call her and ask her how she got the people to die in alphabetical order. <laughs> but anyway, that's the um, – so that was my first job offer there, but I was going to seminary, and so I declined that. And he and I never really crossed paths again, but, but he has been a part of my life. Um, his influence has been a part of my life from that point when he taught me all the way through to this very day. And I, I regret that I never had a chance to go back and talk to him again, especially over here in Columbus. Did you meet Roxanne in college at Mercer? Nope, met her in Conyers. She, um, in the sixth grade, we went to our first, uh, we went to a Valentine banquet together. And I liked Roxanne, and so sixth grade, you know, it's a church Valentine banquet. Okay. So we went and... Um, we um, um, that just kind of began a friendship that grew into romance that grew into marriage through those years. So I dated her actually. Uh, if you count the sixth grade, the first time we went, I never dated anybody else. So she and I kind of grew up together, and for uh, ten years we uh, we went places together. Our families did things together. She lived right down the street from me, so. Uh, or maybe I live down the street from her. It depends on <laughs> who you put in the center of that. But but um, we did those things together. And she went to Tift and Forsyth. I went to Mercer. And then um, we That's pretty there. close. That's pretty close. You, um, when it comes to um, making a decision about um, marriage, uh, who did... Who came up with that idea, you or, or Roxanne? I think we did it together. Okay. That's probably the safest answer for me to give okay. on that. <laughs> um, she, I just think it was pretty good that I was able to convince her to overlook all the stuff with me and to actually marry me at some point. That was a good thing. Well, you know, uh, this month is Pastor's Wife Appreciation Month, and I don't know that you get an opportunity that often to, to lay roses at her feet uh, because of all that she has to do in putting up with being a pastor's wife. Brag on her a little bit. Oh, that's no problem whatsoever. I was trying to hold back a little bit so that you wouldn't think I was trying to take over on that. Uh, Roxanne's been... I always tell people that 99.9% of what I've been able to accomplish or what I've done through the years is to her credit and that probably I'm overestimating the 1.1% of it because she really is, uh, she is deeply spiritual. She is a caring, loving person. She doesn't just love me. She loves the church, the people. She loves the Lord. And she has been um, just a remarkable part of it. We've been, we've been in total partnership the whole time, and it's never me doing my thing and her doing her thing. We do everything together, and it has... Now, she may not always be there on everything because there are times when meeting after meeting after meeting, mm-hmm. she doesn't need to have to get out. But there's never a time that I'm in a place that she's not also backing it up or never a time that she's doing something that I'm not backing it up. It's been a, a remarkable experience. She went to on a mission trip to Liberia, and over there they knew that she was the minister's wife. So they said, oh, the mother of the church. So, so they have teased her around here about being the mother of the church. And, but in so many ways, she has such a, a maternal spirit when it comes to wanting to make sure that the Lord's work is done and it's done faithfully and effectively. And the key to this thing is there's always peace in our home. So no matter what I deal with out there, mm-hmm. you know, you deal with crisis, you deal with funerals, you deal with all this. You go home, there's always a place of peace and grace and love. And it. And she never has held back on things when I had to go and do something. Um, 
part of what happens a lot of times with ministers and ministers' wives is that there's you have so many demands. You have to be hospitals early. You have funerals. You have to get out of town. Sometimes it messes up a vacation. You have to come back. Sometimes it changes um, something with um, birthdays or things like this. They have to delay meals. She has never in the 43 years we've been married, she has never uh, complained about any of it. So it's remarkable. That's something to be thankful for. It's something to be thankful for, and it is. if you didn't believe in God's miracles, you should believe in them now because she is the miracle in my life. So <laughs> We've painted sort of a nice tapestry of your background and what brought you to the point of coming to Columbus. Tell us about the approach, how it was made, what your first impression was um, about Columbus, and how the decision in y'all's home was made about let's let's go to the Fountain City. Well, that was um, uh, you. Know, we don't ever leave a place wanting to leave. We never have. We've been very fortunate. I have, in all the years of doing ministry, I've never had a bad deacons meeting or a bad church conference ever. We've always had incredibly loving and supportive congregations. The first one was in near Decula in Harbins, uh, Gwinnett County. Uh, then from there we moved to Moultrie. From there we moved to Thompson, Georgia. And from there we moved here. And uh, in each of those moves, we were happy where we were. And it was only because we were convinced the Lord wanted us to make the next step. It, was, it never was based upon church, size church, salary, any of that stuff. It was always based upon what we really felt. This is where Roxanne came into it, too. We always would pray, and when we would get, each of us individually would have peace, that's when we would talk to each other and then make the decision. And so we've never done anything that we both weren't totally on board and felt individually called to it, and together we came. Um, the, the The letter from here came from... Doug Pullen, Doug, uh, Judge Pullen, uh, who died not too long ago, was the um, chairman of the committee uh, here at First Baptist Columbus. And so I got a letter from a superior court judge telling me that I was on their list somehow or another. And so that began the conversation. And then Johnny Johnson, who um, ended up being kind of the one that Doug would get to call me in between times, what I found out was that Doug... And the guy who'd been the pulpit committee chair in Thompson, where I was, were fraternity brothers at Mercer. They're both both judges, both lawyers. And so Doug wouldn't come to town to hear me because he was afraid that Roger would have him arrested. <laughs> <laughs> so so Doug, I didn't meet Doug Pull until I came here. And so, and we met with the committee, and it, it literally took, uh, I'm, I'm telling you, Phil, we, we really weren't looking to move. And it took, it took nine months before we actually moved here from the day we first began to talk. And the committee was patient, and we prayed a lot because we wanted to make sure what we did was right. But I will tell you, it has been confirmed over and over and over again that this is the great blessing that God has given us to be able to be in Columbus, to be a part of First Baptist, to, to have friends like you and, and others who've come into our lives. It has been... It has been Absolutely what we were supposed to do, confirmed over and over again. The church started back in 1829, mm-hmm. a year after the city of Columbus was chartered. Mm-hmm. Richard Hyatt uh, wrote a book about right. the church history and, and did a remarkable job. Return to the Water mm-hmm. is the title of it. Um, your impression, if you had this sort of share of, of special moment from the book, we don't have obviously time to to thumb through all the pages, but uh, what jumps out at it uh, to you that, that makes this book special about the history of your church? Well, the thing about First Baptist, and it is, it is such a gift, from the day First Baptist was founded, it was a collaboration of people who were trying to do God's will. They wanted to make a difference in the community. In its earliest days, First Baptist... Um, worked with, in, in those days, I know, I know things have changed now in the way we term things, but one of the first mission projects they had was to work with the Native Americans down near where Fort Benning is, and that was our first mission. 
And um, then from there, each generation, each pastor and all, there have always been missional um, focus. There's always been a missional focus mm-hmm. for the church where we've reached out to go and make a difference within the community. The church, to my knowledge, and, and I know in my experience, has never been a self-centered uh, type of congregation. It's always been one that's always had a door open and arms open for people within the community. When the, the, you know, the great circus train wreck that took place, uh, circus people were not the kind of people that were socially accepted within communities. And so here you have all of the carnage of that. And I think that, it was 1915, somewhere in there? Somewhere along there, yeah. yeah. And uh, you, had, you had people who um, had no family here. You had people who had to be cared for. It was so interesting because First Baptist engaged those people and took care of them. And the pastor at First Baptist at that point, um, I think it was Dr. Porter then, actually brought the families and the bodies to the church and actually did the funeral at the church so that um, they would be taken care of and ministered to as if they were members of the church itself. And that's the way First Baptist has been. It's been a church that had an eye on the community and has wanted to be a part of that. And that legacy, I think, is what impresses me most about that book. It always loops back around to something that they were doing for somebody else. Um, and I can say that because I'm just, a, I'm just one little bitty piece of a history that's just about, within just a few years, will hit 200 years. And in every generation, they've done something significant with the community. I know that we just did a story this past week about Victory Mission, mm-hmm. which is another element of the mission work that your church is doing. And for folks who didn't get a chance to see the story, just uh, in a nutshell, what is Victory Mission and, and its role in the mission work that First Baptist is doing? Well, one thing First Baptist has done is that for 50 years, uh, they have had work in areas other than just on our doorstep. You know, a lot of times it's easy for a church to sit and say, come to us. First Baptist engaged in South Columbus because there were so many people who had so many needs. And in a lot of cases, they wouldn't come up to where we were or go up to another church. And so we established a mission down there with the Columbus Baptist Association. And ultimately, the association kind of backed away from it, and we ended up with it by ourselves. And so for 50 years, we've, been, we've, had, we've done preaching, we've done Bible study and all of this, but also because of the needs there, it's, it's located in one of the mobile home parks there is where it has been. Um, we have actually done English as a second language. We've done after-school type programs, so tutoring, things like that. Uh, when all this COVID stuff happened, we did COVID testing down there because in some cases it might have been a million miles away and just as easy for some of the people to have gotten up to where it needed to be. So working with Mercy Med, we arranged COVID testing there. And so that mission has been, has been faithfully staffed by individuals from our church, people who have volunteered time from all across our church. They have our church has um, funded it, has um, um, done vacation Bible schools, and all had feeding programs, all sorts of things through the years. And that mission, I think, is emblematic of one of the values in our missional program. Yes, we've been to Liberia. Yes, we've been to Honduras and Costa Rica and places like that. But the real focus on our missions is right here in Columbus. I mean, um, what some people are facing in... South Columbus is every bit as challenging as what somebody in Honduras is facing or somebody in Liberia is facing. And we need to be as faithful here in our community to, to put missions money and missions efforts here as to take it somewhere else in another area. I know that you have a focus on uh, music at mm-hmm. First Baptist. Anybody that has had any connection with the church, that's on the forefront. Uh, you call it an incubator for the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll let you elaborate on, you know, maybe how there 
came to be such an emphasis on music at First Baptist? Well, again, that's something that's been a part of First Baptist from the very beginning. Uh, the, the pipe organ in the church was given by Ms. W.C. Bradley uh, back years and years ago. So, so it's had, you know, they've always had very, very f- good music. And, um, and it's kind of been a draw for people to come and to share their talents, some great soloists and instrumentalists, uh, lots of um, some of the great uh, Christian musicians have, have played there. But one of the things that we decided was that with the gift of the Swobe School of Music here in town, that it would be foolish for us not to tap into and to encourage the students who are at Swobe. And so we had someone in the church that made some funding available that made it so that we were able to put together what we call the Court Academy of Music. And uh, Diane Court helped with that dream. And um, that academy, um, well, the, the Court Scholars Program, allows us to go and to give scholarships to some of the students at Swobe, and then they get practical experience with us in the choir, with television, with other things that we do at the church. And so we have, we have had the, the real blessing of having people from all over the world, students, who've come, been a part of our worship and led in worship and been a part of the music there. And we've had some really fine musicians there through the years, including people like um, you know Nancy McKee and Jenny Lee Bullock and others like this. And Keenan Franklin does a marvelous job of that as our minister of music. Let's talk about uh, your personal focus on children, uh, a, a part of uh, what seems to be a, a gleeful part of, of your day, of your part of the service, is when you get to minister to the kids. Oh, I do love that. The, um, somebody asked Walt Disney one time why, why he made children's movies. And he said, I don't make children's movies. He said, I make movies that I understand. <laughs> I, I understand what I say to the children a lot better than I do what I do to the adults sometimes. And um, I thoroughly enjoy them because, you know, if, if we really look at the world that we live in, we need to understand that we're stewards of the time in which we live. And as stewards of the time in which we live, we always should be looking to see who will fill our shoes? Who will be the ones that will carry on the faith? Who are the ones that are going to carry on the missions? And for us to tell kids, go into the other room, you know, be to yourself, does not allow them a place at the table. I told you from the beginning that it, in our house, we didn't have a kid's table where we sat. We sat, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't matter who came to the house and who stayed with us and who was speaking at Dad's church or whatever. We sat together and we shared together, and we were allowed to be a part of the conversation too. And to me, that's the way we really ought to treat children. Jesus did that. Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. And it wasn't just window dressing on that. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. You know, it looks like you and me now. It looks like them in the coming future. And that's something that, that to encourage children and to help and it's not indoctrinating. What it is, it's helping them develop the base of, of values and understanding into how to live out their lives. Uh, go back to your missions thing again. That's one reason that, that we have such a heavy emphasis at Victory Mission on children's programming is because these are young people who have an opportunity to maximize their gifts, their talents, their abilities, and all they need is a little encouragement at times. And so when I get to do it at church with the children's message at the front, and even during COVID, we, uh, we had parents coming and saying, look, we don't want our kids to get out of the habit of coming. So we started a 930 service for parents of young children. It's 30 minutes long, and it has a focus on children. And we've had families coming that bring their children on a very regular faithful basis. And that's helped keep them in the loop, and they have a chance to share in the service and be a part of it that way. I think I really knew we were connecting even with the television when on one Sunday I mentioned something about rainbows and uh, Noah and the rainbow and all that. And some of the kids began to send me uh, pictures of them in their driveways where they'd taken driveway chalk and drawn, uh, drawn uh, uh, rainbows 
on the driveway and were telling people Jesus loves you from that. But they were they were listening, they caught the idea, and then they wanted to do something with it. So that was pretty neat. You mentioned COVID. Um, we are about at the one-year anniversary of it being introduced into our culture and our way of life, mm-hmm. uh, which impacted you personally. I remember doing a story with you. You were kind enough to sort of share that part of your personal journey of having tested positive. Let's go back and, and review what what that did to ministry at First Baptist, what that did to you going through the process. I know you personally uh, weren't tremendously impacted, but, but you know, it, it did have an impact on Roxanne. Right. Talk, talk about those days. Well, it's um, when you mentioned COVID, I thought, been there, done that, mm-hmm. literally. Um, because when it began to hit at first, um, and I even had conversations where I did not, in its beginning stages, see this as the pandemic it turned out to be. And um, when you so, tested positive, when was that? That was in what? It was early on. It was really early. What was that? March, May, April, somewhere yeah, along the there. It was very early. Yeah. I don't remember exactly the time. It's been about a year, mm-hmm. and. Um, but I test. I was one of the first that a lot of people knew that had 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 it, and um, I know how I got it. I know somebody came into what we were doing, and and they tested positive. I thought, well, they've tested. I might better get checked too. And when I did, I found out that I'd had it uh, or had it. The impact of it was it's a. It was. Um, well, it was depressing for one thing because everything was shutting down, and you were seeing, you know, for a Baptist preacher, uh, success is you walk into the pulpit on Sunday, you have a full house, and suddenly you have an empty house, and suddenly you can't even have the services, and and that's unthinkable that you would not be able to go to the Lord's house and preach and have people there and witness and care for people. Uh, then I wasn't able to go to the hospitals. That was tough to not even be able to especially go for and, you. Oh yeah, that's a Part of your ministry. Yeah, I love that. Anybody who knows you. Well, and I love that part. Thank you. Um, Go in there before surgeries and all of that, and we couldn't do that. So we kind of retooled a little bit. I have a great staff. We have great people around who who were real um, flexible, real malleable in this whole thing. And so we decided that what we were going to do is become as much a word of encouragement as possible. We cut commercials. You know, we have our commercial zone. So we, we went back and cut commercials saying, look, we're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. And we put those out within just days of this thing beginning. When I did test positive, you know, there was this debate as to whether I should say something about it or not say something. You kind of just retreat back, go into kind of your quiet. But it became really an opportunity because somebody, they with all the um, – the hype about everything. Uh, people thought, well, you get COVID, you're going to die. And they needed to see somebody that went through it and didn't. And that you could be essentially asymptomatic. You could even, well, Roxanne had it more with fever and all of that. But that you could see that it was something that could be handled and could be managed. And so we started kind of spending more time putting words of encouragement. And even in sermons, I tried to... Um, interpret the passage and helping people to see how hope was there as opposed to things just, you know, falling apart around us. And so um, it really, after that initial kind of being depressed about it and frustrated about it, and you go through all those stages of, of, um, of grieving, you, you get to the point where you say, okay, but there's something good that can come out of this. My dad used to always say that, it's an ill wind that blows no good. There's something that can come out. And so when you and I had a chance to talk, that was a real gift to my life. You ministered to my life by doing that interview because it gave me a chance to actually open up, tell people what was happening, and say, look, I made it, and you can too. It gave us a chance to emphasize, um, I have such a profound respect. I thought I already did, but nowhere near what I do now. Uh, profound respect for healthcare workers, uh, for our public safety people, uh, for the the just absolutely difficult place that our our city leadership and others were in, in trying to make decisions and trying to 
balance all the expectations while being able to keep us safe and at the same time keep the economy moving. I mean, that was, they were in an impossible place. And to be able to help encourage and calm and to offer some grace at that point, we figured was part of what our ministry should be. And so that's been a bit of the voice. And the other thing is to think about the people who were putting soup on the on the counters and uh, you know on the shelves at the store and the people who are driving the trucks in and all these are unsung heroes people who are delivering at restaurants and people who are delivering groceries and things like that the the fact that we have an incredible community we have people whose talents we have taken for granted that if nothing else out of this we will always appreciate the stock boy at the grocery store in a totally different way because of what they did, the uh, our news people for making sure we were kept up to date. Y'all never got into the hype around here. National stuff, yes, they did, but not around here. You kept, you reported the numbers, you gave us the information, but it was done in in a like family talking about it, as opposed to, oh no, the sky is falling. And you kept that kind of of base in place for us, and and I'm grateful for that. I think we found a new ministry opportunity is what we found. You as a pastor in dealing with weddings, mm-hmm. funerals, times when people come together. And I know I did a story with you um, Zooming a wedding. I did. Uh, from Atlanta, I believe it was. I did. I did a Zoom wedding from Atlanta. Uh, went up and um, the um, the bride and groom had said we can just I could just zoom in and do it and the other but we said no we want to go up I want to go up and do that but it was the bride the groom and me and then there was a screen with all of the other family members who were scattered all over the south and so when I said who presents this bride to be married to this groom her dad on screen said her mother and I so we went with that. Dennis Hendricks did that, and so it was. Um, Wasn't Rick McKnight involved in the playing the organ? Oh, the he piano? played the organ yeah. from down here. Yeah, <laughs> Rick McKnight did that, and Dennis <laughs> Hendricks did the father thing, and you know, we were in Atlanta with um, with the bride and groom. So it was um, it was really an interesting thing, and they all had a they all had cake at the different places, and so they learned a way to make it work even through Zoom. Um, and then I did a Zoom funeral. I don't know if you knew I did that, too, in the middle of so. it all. When I was quarantined, we had a lady who died, and so I said, well, I'll, I'll arrange for either we can wait or I can arrange for somebody to, to do that, which I almost never try to get anybody else to do that because, to me, the funerals and the weddings, those are personal contact. You need your pastor to mm-hmm. take care of you in those. And so that's, um, that's a privilege and responsibility for me. So I offered, and they said, no, Mama wanted you to do it. And I said, well, I can't come. But I said, you know, we could. the only thing we could do is to Zoom it or FaceTime it. And uh, they said, that'll be great. So bless their hearts, out at Striffler, they, they put a big screen up in the mausoleum, and I had a camera in my study, and we did a funeral that way. So, But, you know, again, we've, we've learned so much about the durability of relationships and the adaptability of relationships and the creativity in in making things happen. The ministry has to happen. So instead of our sitting back saying, well, if it were different, I could do this or that, we say, okay, we're going to make it happen. It may look different and it may feel a little strange, but we're going to do that. How has the church survived um attendance wise in, in the craziness of financial the, the you know the money coming in what what um, wrench did covid throw into those elements that it takes for a church to operate the worst thing it did was frustrate us um, the the church has really you said survive it's really thrived we have accomplished a lot of things that we've been working on we have uh, we've never missed a beat we've been working on this victory mission thing it still happened even with with um, with COVID and with all of that in there, we've 
We have continued to have services on Sundays. We missed two services because of my quarantining and all. We had to rebroadcast two things, Mm -hmm. uh, missed two Sundays. But other than that, we have not missed a service. We have had, we've kept it as normal as we could. Even when we couldn't have people in the room, we worked it out to have a choir. We worked it out to have the musicians so that uh, I still went to the pulpit. We still did it in the sanctuary. And part of that's because of the foresight of of some of the people who have been in that church for uh, in the past. Uh, Othell Hand, for instance, believed in television, and he wanted to make sure we had uh, television as a part of our ministry. And people thought, well, that's really nice. It's kind of an add-on piece. But it became an essential part of what we were doing. And instead of our having to tool up and gear up to do it, mm-hmm. We already were in place, and we're already live streaming. So we were very blessed to have had far-sighted leaders. And that's the other thing it's done for us. It's reminded us that we never need to be nearsighted on what we plan and how we do things. There's no such thing as just getting through this particular generation or this particular time. We always need to think about the far-reaching implications of whatever we begin, whatever ministries we do, whatever technology we're a part of and the relationships that we have to keep it reaching out and knowing that who knows when that tool might be something that God put into the to the basket to pull out at a time that we never anticipated would happen. In the summer of 2020, uh, we had the George Floyd murder in Minnesota. We had... Um, other things that caused racial tension in in across the the country uh, and even the globe for that matter, um, and you were a part of something to try to start a dialogue and a conversation that might um, explore opportunities for how people could help. Tell me how that started, who it started with, and and is it still continuing today? Sure. Well, first thing I'll say is we have an incredible group of churches in this community. We really do. We have we have some tremendous spiritual leaders in these churches. And one of them that I've had the privilege of working with and growing closer to through this is Johnny Flakes at, mm-hmm. at, at 4th Street, Missionary Baptist. And uh, Johnny and I were talking one day, and, uh, and we were talking about different stuff and the George Floyd... Um, situation came up. Mm-hmm. And so he and I were talking back and forth about it. And he said, you know, he said, this is something that this conversation is good. It's something that we really need. I said, we really need to be doing this with more. And he said, that's what I'm thinking. We ought to expand it out. So he and I kind of put out a call to some other ministers who have joined us on this. And we've had, um, I can't even tell you how many right now, 20 ministers or so at or maybe 25 who've joined us at one time or another, um, just to have a conversation to get to know each other better. It was not, we didn't want it to be something that was uh, a response to a crisis. You know, the things that you respond to a crisis are things that don't often last. They, they kind of get you over the hump, then you say, whew, it's over. This was something we said, you know, this is, has indicated to us that we don't know each other well enough. So we began these conversations, and um, so we Zoom. We do it every two weeks, and it has been uh, some people, sometimes you can be there, sometimes you can't, but this has been going on since, goodness, um, probably May of last year. So it's been going on for a long time, maybe April. And um, the conversation has been healthy. We have talked about community. We've talked about getting to know each other. We've talked about race relations. We've talked about, um, and, and, and the interesting thing is, Phil, we've had a chance for people to explain what it feels like. If you've never had um, a black man to tell you what it feels like when, when he has been, you know, um, the, the victim of bigotry or racism, it's very difficult for someone who's never been black to understand what they feel. And we've had a chance to have that kind of conversation. And by the same token, we've had the opportunity to say what 
I don't understand. Please explain this to me. And instead of it being a threatening environment where it where it kind of gets out of line and people begin, you know, being tense with each other, they've all been patient with each other. They've talked. They have been transparent, and uh, it's been beautiful. Now, um, the credit for it goes to the entire group because they're the ones that, you know, you don't have a group unless everybody shows up. Mm-hmm. This started with a conversation that Johnny and I had, and uh, Johnny is a is a wonderfully uh, gifted and also um, big-hearted kind of individual, and he really has the heart of the community in his in his heart, right, uh, as well. So that's something that's been a nice collaborative piece, and I enjoy that. Friendships uh, either established or strengthened. Absolutely, and that's and you know that's really what it's all about. If you had, if I had to go back and say anything that COVID has absolutely poured poured um, jet fuel on and just made flare up, it is the importance of relationships. So much of what we've done in our world, and from the politics of it to the way church was evolving to everything else, it has become so siloed, and people are so they become spectators. They're separating from each other. And during COVID, we really understand how much we long for that relationship, long to be able to go up and hug somebody or to shake mm-hmm. somebody's hand and, and not just sit in a concert and watch somebody up there. Um, and really, that's what the important part of church is. Uh, church is to be a place where we relate to each other, we know each other, and that we can be vulnerable with each other, know each other's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what Jesus had taught us in, in everything. Jesus spent a lot more time one-on-one small group than he ever did with 5,000 people. And, you know, he fed those. But, but the point was, even in that, there are little relationships that, that come out of that conversation. And so if COVID hadn't done anything else for us, it's reminded us how much we need each other and how important the relationship is with each other. And I'm hoping that lasts. Amen. Let's shift gears a little bit uh, and go back, uh, track a little bit to Mercer. Mm-hmm. You don't want to take credit for uh, anything, but being on the board of trustees at Mercer, uh, there has been a lot of Mercer activity in the Fountain City. There's some going on right on the riverbank uh, next to Tesis as we speak. So, so paint a picture of um, what uh, has been incubated here in Columbus and is growing into uh, quite a dynamic program for medical students from Mercer. Well, we were, we were the largest community that did not have a medical school here in Columbus, in uh, the state of Georgia. And the I've been on the trustees at Mercer. I'm on my fourth, fourth five-year term, so I've been on a long time. And I've known what the philosophy of the med school was. And so... Um, Pete Robinson and Richard Smith and Tom Black and I sat down and had a conversation, and we decided that, you know, you might as well go for broke. So we we went to Macon and asked the president of the university if he would put a medical campus here, one of the medical schools here. We wanted four years, and he told us what it would take. And true to form with this community, our community got on board and did what needed to be done. And raised, you know, we had a, a, a wonderful, generous beginning gift. We had uh, gifts that uh, others began to get involved in. And before it was over, the community raised almost $15 million uh, because of um, businessmen, individuals who were so intent upon making sure that something like this happened. They saw it as, as an opportunity to um, for economic development, and the fact that we just need to be training doctors here. We need we need to have, um, you know, so many of our doctors that we have here are in an age group that in the next 10 to 15 years, a lot of them are going to retire. And so we're going to need to have doctors here. Why not rear them here in the community, let them fall in love with it, and uh, so we, you know, develop our own doctors here. Well, anyway, Mercer liked the idea, and uh, Bill Underwood, the president, 
got involved in this whole process, and and so it grew. And I'm not even going to begin to name names because it's it's um, there are so many people in Columbus who had a hand in it one way or another. The land was given, the money's been given, the um, the visions there, the community leadership's been a part of it. That it's been amazing. It's it it is typical Columbus. Everybody got on board and did something and. Nobody wanted their name written on the front. And so that's that's been the way it's happened. So we're building now the building for the medical school. It'll have the four years uh, four years of medical school there. You'll have, um, it's an 85,000 square foot building right next to Tesis on the river. And uh, we'll have 240 medical students plus master's and PhD students that'll be in there too. We'll have they're already hiring scientists who are already who will be teaching and will also be um, a part of the um, community. They're buying houses here and are involved that way. So economically, we're already seeing an uptick in some of that. Uh, we have doctors who've graduated. We've had the third and fourth year program for about eight or nine years, and we already have doctors who've gone through their residency program and are coming back because they wanted to come back to Columbus. Um, we are constantly, they're building a relationship with, CSU has a pre-med program that's excellent. And um, as of the open, the first first-year students, we had third and fourth so far, but the first year, first first-year students will come in this coming autumn. And it will be possible after that for a child to be born in Columbus to go through the school system here, to do pre-med at Columbus State, medical school on the Columbus campus of Mercer, do their residency here at the hospitals, and then come uh, leave the residency and begin practice. You can They'll be able to go wow. all the way through here in Columbus. I think it's an important part of it. Now, Mercer's vision, and this is why I love it and believe in it, is to help in the underserved areas. So, so Mercer is putting clinics. They're involved down in... They've opened in Fort Gaines, Plains. Um, that's another Jimmy Carter story, I'll tell you. But the, in Plains, in um, I think in Fort Valley, uh, over in let's see Edenton, and then they're working on one in, even in Harris County. So um, uh, the people of Harris County are working on that, and it's going to be just a remarkable ability to give. Um, good health care to these communities. You know, we always talk about health care being a poverty issue. It's not just poverty. You can have somebody who could buy all of us out in certain parts of Georgia that still have to drive two hours to get to a doctor. It is the problem, the crisis of health care is it's just not available. And with these clinics and with these doctors being able to go through these uh, rotate through the clinics and be a part of it too. It's going to be revolutionary, and we will be able eventually to take one of the largest areas of underserved people off the map in terms of being underserved. And uh, we even have a, a clinic room at the new Victory Mission on on uh, Victory Drive. Well, thank you for your role in uh, the mission that Mercer is is you know. Conducting right here in the heart of the Fountain City, right right on the riverbank. Well, thank you. Mercer's a special school, and it has it has a heart for this state, and has for a long time. And the collaboration that they're working with the Pastoral Institute, with the hospitals here, with CSU, um, it it is absolutely amazing the cooperation and the. The, the joyful collaboration that's there. It's beautiful. I've got to get used to saying, go Bears. That's right. Uh, I've, I've, you know, I'm a Georgia Bulldog and, uh, and yeah, go but Dogs. You know Rick. You know Rick Cameron. <laughs> Actually, the play-by-play for the Mercer Bears, he and I went to high school together. You're right, Rick Cameron. So we're looking forward as my granddaughter heads to Mercer and plays beach volleyball over there. That's uh, right. We're, hopefully we're going to reconnect after a long period of time. We graduated uh, about 50 years ago from high school. But um, I wanted to, uh, to ask you a, a final maybe pastoral um, question. How does God speak to you as, as a pastor? That's a good question. Um, it's like a, an ongoing conversation. 
Um, and it's it's not me because I'm a pastor. It's me because I'm a Christian. It's a it it truly is that God speaks in so many different ways. He'll speak through. Uh, a relationship I have with someone else. Somebody says something, and it, it I hear God's voice mm-hmm. in that. Um, you know, I, through Scripture, of course, through worship services, of course, through music. Music, to me, is such an important part of it. And I didn't really say a whole as much about that as I'd love to, because music is so much... I think there is a rhythm in this world that God put into place that when we when we allow our being to to sync with the rhythm of God's heart, which you hear in music and you see in the waves at the beach and you hear in the crickets there, that it slows us down, it calms our stress, it takes away a lot of our our issues and draws us closer to God. He calls us to be close to, to be in rhythm with Him rather than our trying to rush Him up and do what we want Him to do. So when I hear Him speak, it'll be through through the voices that are all around me and are a part of, of the spiritual landscape of the world that he created. You know, I, I, it, it, I'm not one of those people who, who says, you know, I go into a closet and I sit down and I just listen and there it happens mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm too ADD for that. But, but the, tru- the, tru- the truth of the matter is that that God is alive and involved in in every bit of the world that we live in. And I would never cheat myself by staying in one little corner somewhere. I want to I want to see God in your eyes. I want to see God in the eyes of a child. I want to see God in the in the hands of one of the nurses at the hospital helping somebody. I want to see I want to see God in the in the stance of a teacher in front of a class teaching I want to see God in, in a person who's giving food to someone else. I want to see God in the homeless guy on the corner who, who asks you to have a good day and, and you can have a conversation with him and you become friends. I'm, that's, God is everywhere. And for us to, to limit him, I don't limit him to a sanctuary and I don't limit him to the pages of a Bible. I limit him, I, he is the unlimited presence that is around us that we need to absolutely lean into wherever we happen to be. And that's what praying without ceasing is. It is that we are constantly in a dialogue with God. I don't know if I answered your question, you but, did. but that's kind of where mine is. So. Beautifully. You have a favorite Bible verse? Ah, Isaiah. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They mount up with wings as eagles. They run and will not be weary. They walk and faint not. And if I have quoted it once, I've quoted it a thousand times during COVID because in so many ways we've just had to wait. And our world has become so impatient. We're impatient with our leaders. We're impatient with our, with our scientists. We're impatient with our doctors. We're impatient with those. And what God said is, look, peace be still. Let's just sit down for a minute and let this thing take its course. And, and the waiting... The waiting that God gives us the ability to do gives us time with Him. I've said so many times when I've been dealing with members of the church, patients in hospitals and all, where we had to wait on a result coming back. And some of the richest part of the relationship and the richest ministry we ever did was in the waiting. I even met an anchor from one of the local stations in a waiting room once. (laughs) How's that for bookending this? I think we're right back where we started. (laughs) And we're out of time. Perfect. You, you got this time like you do this on Sunday morning and look at the clock and you end right at noon. We haven't taken the offering or had the invitation. But. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you so much for being my guest here tonight on Faces of Faith. I well, think thanks you're a, for having I me. I think you're a powerful image in our community of uh, the voice of God. Uh, you impart uh, what is in your heart and I think what's in his heart uh, to those that will listen to you. So uh, for the past hour, I've really enjoyed just getting to know your heart better, and I think our viewers have too. Well, I love you, bud, and I appreciate what you do. You're a gift to this community and a gift to my life. God bless you.
Thank you. Feelings mutual. Here's a reminder for you. You can watch the Faces of Faith stream live on WRBL.com every Thursday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central Time. You can watch the replay the next day on our website. And then coming soon, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. It will be on Apple, Spotify, or Audible, so you can listen to the show on the go. And that's going to do it for another edition of Faces of Faith. This is Phil Scoggins, your host, reminding you that whatever you're going through, remember, keep the faith. <laughs>